So I'd like to turn uh, us to turn to Acts chapter 6, and uh, I'm going to read these first seven verses from uh, the Acts of the Apostles uh, chapter 6. Here's a Bible in front of you if uh, uh, you don't have one, and on the note sheet in there, which I'm going to be asking you to look at in a few minutes, there's the page number as well. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, I've been challenging us personally in these weeks through some of these um, amazing examples of faith and obedience. We need to learn some things uh, now, uh, more about the bigger picture of what is happening in all that the Holy Spirit is doing. We need to learn some things organizationally and historically and all the next that God is doing. This is about the the new structure of God's people that he's beginning to shape. And secondly, we need to learn that we don't have to be perfect in this whole uh, challenge of all that God has for us next. This is uh, about a new way of living. We don't have to be perfect. We just need to be growing. And he's going to challenge us in that. You see, the teaching of Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 16, he says, I will build my church, is coming true in all kinds of new ways. But, what's this new church actually going to look like? How's it going to function? We can get all excited about what God wants to do and can do through a local church, but then as we get going on it, we begin to look around and say, Who, who's making up this church anyway? We start trying to work together with uh, other people who are less perfect than myself. Just thought I'd throw that out there. You know, such, a, such a burden each week to work with such human people. Um, and I know they don't struggle with me, but it, you know. You know, don't the practical problems of everyday life just start getting in the way and ourselves in the way? They do. In fact, our superheroes of the faith here start to show their real humanity. One of the uh, compelling verifications, interestingly enough, little parenthesis here, about the veracity and the authority of the Bible itself, that we can trust it as God's word. One of the interesting little arguments to support that, which we believe, is the fact that the Bible honestly reflects human beings as they actually are. If this was a product of our own writing, 
wouldn't we make ourselves look a little better than we are? Like I just did a minute ago? Wouldn't we? And yet, we can see in it this amazingly honest representation of these people. And this is the perfect example. It's downright embarrassing. We've gone from healings and miracles and miraculous escapes from jail, open persecution and flogging and near martyrdom to squabbling about accents and language and where people come from. From everyone sharing and no one being in need to some widows going hungry while others are cared for. How pathetic. But I want you to see that even in the practical nature of this issue and the response to it, we get our learning redefined by revelation. So Luke is about to bring his first chapter to an end. I know you think we're in Acts chapter 6, but actually he's only got like seven chapters to this long book. And this is the end of his first one. With all the amazing things that have been happening, he sets up what's next in his next chapter with what seems to be a strange lesson. But a closer look shows how essential it is to understanding what God is doing and what he's going to continue to do. So let me try and make that just as tangible as possible by putting it to you this way. First of all, verse verse 1 tells us that people are the problem. You people. Me, people. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, more people, more problems. I referred a few weeks ago to it church that I visited, you remember the rich guy and, uh, and, and all that he wanted to do, the guy that you know, took over the Wendy's and then you know, became so wealthy, was trying to figure out what to do with all his money, remember that story? That same pastor of that church, when I visited, they were meeting in a school and they were about 300 people or something like that. Um, now they have two locations and they have somewhere between two and 3,000 people going to this church. Every once in a while I call him just to talk to him and, and his, his words to me, Jeff, how you doing? More people, more problems. He says, you think you want a big church until you get one. And then he tells me some stories. And believe me, if I told you some of these stories, you wouldn't hear the rest of the message. So I'm not telling them to you. Because I want crazy what things people get themselves into. What we do, right? This Grecian-Hebraic-Jewish divide, let me explain it a little bit to you. Since the Old Testament when the perfect people of God, the ones that he had chosen to be his people, were were anything but perfect and very rebellious and continued to sin against him, he had them exiled to Babylon. They were taken out of their homeland and moved to Babylon for 70 years. Since that time, the disbursement of the people of God, the Jews, has been known as the diaspora. And we still refer to it because there's still remnants of this spreading all throughout the world. Then what happened is after 70 years, a number of them returned back to Jerusalem and reestablished the wall and the temple and so on. Now, this caused all kinds of prejudices among Jews to come about. At least three of them that we, that we see immediately here. First of all, you got the Samaritan issue. When these people were exiled to Babylon, not every single Jew was taken. The more weak and infirmed and so on were left behind. 
For a couple of generations of living there, they married uh, others uh, from, from other nationalities uh, in Palestine and became what we know as the Samaritans today. And that's why you have the power of the, of the parable the, of, the, of the good Samaritan because he was hated by the Jews and he ends up loving this Jewish person. So there's this huge divide that exists there. You got these Hebraic Jews who came back and they speak Semitic languages at this particular time it was Aramaic and uh, they think that they're you know, better Jews because they've stayed more faithful to things. And then you have others that were spread all over the place, this diaspora, that in the successive years, for hundreds of years after these people came back from Babylon, more Jews came back. And so we find ourselves in the New Testament with a number of Jews that are back there in Jerusalem. But because of the spread of the Roman Empire and Grecian culture, they now act and think more like Greeks than Jews. And they speak Greek, not Aramaic. Well, you know what all of this adds up to? Bigotry. Prejudice. The natural heart of man coming out, showing up again. And we all have this in our hearts. This natural tendency to judge and condemn and ignorantly assume and project certain stereotypes and behaviors and attitudes on people that are just different from us. Like the African-American couple that were a part of our church in Brooklyn who could not live in our neighborhood. We lived in the single least populated community of African Americans in all of New York City, carefully protected by redlining by real estate agents and supported by the church, ours in its own little way, because we had people with rental properties in that community who would not rent to this couple because they feared what their community would say. Last night I was in a church in Clifton, New Jersey, and it's fascinating. Uh, its facility compared to ours is pathetic, yet they have six different congregations in six different languages that meet in that facility every single week. And Sunday mornings, all the way through until the evening, all six congregations take their turn in meeting in different languages. Now, I was sitting there next to a senior pastor friend of mine, and while I'm hearing about this, he leans over and he goes, this is an amazing change. I said, really? He goes, yeah, I was the youth pastor in this church many years ago. I had 100 young people in this gymnasium during the week for youth activities. And I was eventually asked to leave because these kids were a little too different than the rest of us. Wow. And here in this chapter, this is particularly deep-seated because it's fed by religious pride and purity. See, the, the reality that go, what was going on wasn't just this particular problem. That was just emblematic of it. Before these people became Christians, they went to synagogues, and in those synagogues, there were synagogues for the Grecian Jews, and there were synagogues for the Hebraic Jews. When push comes to shove, things get really ugly. Now, do we have any of these among ourselves? Have we banned ourselves of all racism? I mean, consider your reaction when you notice an accent of a person you're speaking with or, or a different skin color or facial structure. 
that affect the way you respond to them? Ah, we're bigger than that, aren't we? I'm looking out at a sea of all kinds of different nationalities here. What about politically? If I just bring up a couple topics, and I won't because then you're not going to hear the rest of the message again, all I got to do is mention one hot topic, and your opinions are deep and ardent. And if somebody's got a different one, you feel a moral obligation to bring correction to their thinking. See, it doesn't take much to polarize people, does it? But, here's what's amazing. In verse 1, people are the problem. In verse 2 through 5, people are the answer. Check out the irony. This is amazing. In verses 2 through 5, these leaders gather the disciples together. And then they explain, listen, we're going to talk about this. Instead of withdrawing, because that's the natural tendency, oh, different, no, not me. There's an engagement, there's a moving forward. Let's talk about this. And then what happens is they set some priorities for what people need to be doing according to their gifting. And then they empower people to do those things. It's remarkable. It's the muscle building that I was talking about last week. Remember this work of the Holy Spirit? Instead of us just hanging on a bar and developing calluses, just waiting till Jesus comes back, there's a response. There's a, there's a response to the issue, and there's a pulling up. There's a strengthening. And instead of this issue, uh, just kind of going, well, let's just not talk about it. We'll hang in there and hope that Jesus comes back soon. They get them together and say, what are we going to do to bring some change in this situation? How do we meet these needs? Conversation, priorities, and empowering of people. It's what we try and do around here. Empower people according to their gifts and abilities in ways that will be in the best interest of the entire congregation to help everybody. And what's remarkable is that this pleased the whole group. That's what verse 5 says. They've gone from great to not so good to, oh man, this is how we can approach this. As frustrated as we can get with each other, the most meaningful things happen in our lives, that happen in our lives, have to do with each other, don't they? Why do we like Thanksgiving? And why do we like Christmas? Because it's not about the things and the objects and the impersonal nature of possessions. It's the time that we get to spend together, don't you think? The greatest things in our lives are populated by names and faces and individuals and relationships and loved ones. You see... If some careful leadership is offered as a whole in the church and then in personal choices that we make, it can make all the difference. This, isn't, this passage is often used to, to talk about how the church is supposed to be structured and, and it can be very helpful in that. But this was more about setting some priorities and empowering some people to do what they ought to do. I just recently read a book called Crazy Busy. 
You should read this. The subtitle is A Mercifully Short Book on a Very Important Subject. (laughs) Kevin DeYoung. And here's a few things that he says in there. Because we're all crazy busy, right? Those who end up doing nothing in life are those who never understand they can't do everything. Think about that. When you're trying to accomplish everything, you know what you accomplish? Nothing. You got to make some choices and, and prioritize. Setting priorities is an expression of love towards God and others because I choose to make what's most important most important and I let the other stuff go. I mean, surely there's someone else that can step up and do that. Because he says, unclaimed time tends to flow towards our weaknesses. Just create enough space and you're going to drift towards what you don't do well. And they, then your time gets swallowed up by dominant people and surrendered to emergencies. Interesting book. You should think about that. But my point in this is just that the answer is found in the people part of the equation here. Careful choices and good leadership and personal choices make the difference. It's not just about a certain organization. It's about choosing priorities and empowering people and this it's this way because verse 7 shows that people are the objective so people are the problem people are the answer and that's all true because people are the objective and you end up with this amazing critical verse 7 so the word of God spread the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith now The problem could have meant disaster for the church, division, dissemination of the church, right off the bat in its infancy. Instead, once again, in a few short verses, we go from poor, neglected widows not being cared for to more and more people being reached and the joining of men of great influence that will actually become very critical in moving this work of God forward. The objective is people in all of our diversity. And this becomes the next of what God is doing. From here, Luke moves to the next chapter. And this will mean a greater and greater diversity, more and more people. The need for all to see that God has in mind a whole world to reach and not just me. Now, that's why I, on your uh, outline, I told you I was going to refer to this. On the back side, I've given you... Uh, the chapters that Luke has established once again. I want you to mark your Bibles in red on those verses in red, and we've come to the first one. I'm talking about this new way and this new structure because in this passage, we come to the end of Luke's first geographical progression of all that God is doing next, and and in that, we've understood uh, this redefinition of these values of how we gather and how we serve and how we learn. But now he's about to turn to a next chapter of where I need to be next in this picture. And this is the, um, this is uh, moving to, out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria, and then we're going to see how that progresses geographically. On the bottom of the page, you'll see by the end of this year, we're going to know what God is doing now, that's what we've done this fall, fall, this fall, then where I need to be in His plan, that'll be in the winter, and then who I need to see around me will be in the spring. So, Look at this map now. When you consider the difficulty of all the inbred prejudice that there was in Judea and Samaria outside of Jerusalem, 
you can see this remarkable turn of events, a new way of living. We begin to see that God wants to do in this church and personally some amazing things to change the way they think, they act, and they believe about people that are around them. You know what that means? That means more change, more new, more challenge. Now, it doesn't seem like much to us. Okay, you got your little circle, and then you go to... Think about those people that lived in Judea and Samaria. To these people, this was a huge shift of understanding. You mean I'm supposed to care about them? I'm supposed to go where? How can we be ready for all that is next when we so naturally are averse to change? Well, I'm going to suggest a few things in just a second. Next week, we're going to start Advent. You know, we've got an interesting calendar year this year. Thanksgiving weekend is also the first weekend in December. And so we're going to head into a celebration of Advent all through Christmas, looking at the first Christmas. Don't miss it. I think you're going to love it. It's going to be powerful. They're going to have some really practical things that you can do to make this Christmas meaningful to you special to others and significant in the life of those that may be around you and maybe a long way away from you. So that's just a little commercial there for, for next week because we'll return in January to start looking at chapter 7 and following in uh, the book of Acts or the rest of chapter 6 and so on. But how can we be ready for all that is next when we're so naturally averse to this change? Well, here's what I want you to see, and that should come up on the screen right now. Recognize the problem in yourself. Your natural prejudices. We've all got them. You may think we're over them, but they need to be challenged because as much as we make progress, then something else comes along. It's natural. doesn't make it right. It's there. Recognize it. And trust that God will help you work and move beyond it. See that the answer is in those that God has given you in your life. He's brought people around you for a reason. Some of those are closest to you and understand you and they can help as you discuss and learn. Some of those are very different from you and that's intended to grow you and to teach you, to change you. Make your objective the very same one God gave his life for. People. Because people are the objective. God's plan for this world is to call out for for himself a people. And this is actually accomplished through his concern for the individual. And how that individual then loves other individuals just as God loved them. Is your objective the same one God's Son died for? People? God's plan is accomplished through each person that loves another person as they have been loved. How much have you been loved? Isn't it only natural, isn't it only right that we would love just as much another one? So, as we bring this to a close, I think we have a practical way of preparing ourselves for this. And it's called communion. Because communion, too, is about people. 
In Luke chapter 22, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover for, uh, for you, with you, I'm sorry. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you, and I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Now, isn't that interesting? This table that was so precious to Jesus that he wanted to sit with his disciples, he washed their feet. He loved them as much as he could, prepared them for all that was going to happen. The symbol of this is he broke the bread and said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to give my body for you. I'm going to die for you. But I'm going to conquer death. I'm going to rise again. And this blood is, is going to be shed. My veins will open and I will pour out my blood and, and that will offer forgiveness of sin for you. Think of how meaningful that was. He's waiting to do it again until he can be together with us. This is meaningless to him without us there. Think about that. Because his objective is people. And in this time, he is there preparing a place for us, sent his Holy Spirit to work in us, to accomplish all that he desires. And we're supposed to be remembering and celebrating, looking forward to a day when we get to do this together with him. And very honestly, it'll be a whole lot more than a little grape juice and a cracker, right? It'll be a feast as we celebrate the significance for all of eternity. A God who loved people, all kinds of people, from every tribe and tongue and nation and land. 